Welcome to Hillside Baptist Church Podcast. We are a church that is committed to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is our privilege to open God's word with you. It is our prayer that you receive the message from the man of God with an open heart. That through God's word, you are encouraged and equipped to face life's challenges. But most importantly, it is our prayer that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior if you haven't already. If you'd like to connect with us, you can do so at hillsidebc.com, find us on Facebook, or send us an email at info at hillsidebc.com. We hope that you benefit from today's message and that you would share it with a friend. But let's now open our hearts and God's Word. Well, grab your Bibles tonight. We're going to do something a little different. We're going to have some interaction tonight. And so I'm not going to come up and preach. We're going to do a little bit of lesson in learning how to apply what we've been talking about in, in Bible study. And so it's so important that it's not just the preacher that studies his Bible, but all of us study the Word of God uh, in our own homes. And so you're going to want your Bible. We're going to get into it in just a moment. But we're talking tonight about effective Bible study. And we're going to look at some steps to that tonight. And so we've been looking at this, this theme of mining for gold out of the book of Proverbs chapter 2. And as we look through the, uh, the book of Proverbs, we see this importance and that it takes hard work sometimes to glean the riches of God's Word. But there are some nuggets on the top, but there's a lot of good stuff when we put in a, uh, the, the efforts to grow in God's Word. And so uh, I'm going to give you an example of a text message, and we're going to use this text message uh, that was sent, and it's going to be kind of like a, a lesson in learning the importance of context to tonight. And so there was an employee who was in, uh, just about to leave the office, and so he sent this text message uh, that I'll show you in just a minute to some fellow employees to let him know where he was going. And instead of sending it to the people in the office, he sent it to three employees that were outside of the country, three different people. Didn't, didn't send it to them on purpose. It was an accident. Uh, and so he said, just simply said this, went to grab a bite, be back in a jiffy, don't start the shindig without me. Now, most of us, being Americans, we can read that and we can understand exactly what's going on here. But these people aren't Amer Americans that received this text. They had no idea of the context that was going on around it. And so the first person, he looked at the first line and he said, went to gra grab a bite. And so he inferred that his fellow employee went out to go get some computer, uh, computer software data bytes, you know, like megabytes, gigabytes. What is that called? Terabytes, whatever. He went, go buy, he went to the computer store to buy some bites there. The second person interpreted the second line to mean that the sender is going to return back in a giant jar of peanut butter. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Somebody likes peanut butter. The third person translated the last line, don't start the shindig without me, believing that the sender was going to perform a leg surgery. Shindig. <laughs> Listen, are any of those the right interpretation? What would they need to be able to discern the right interpretation of this text message? Context. All right, so what, what is context? Help me out. I, I know, but because you helped me, I'm going to ask you to help me again, Brother Steve. Okay, good. So we need to know the circumstances, what's going on around it. Now, they're also foreigners, all right? So English is not a first language. Uh, and so would it help to understand the English language? 
Would it help to maybe understand some slang in the English language? Without a doubt, right? And so there's some context things. So we need to know who the author is, who has sent this. We need to know the author's intention. So the intention was, hey, I'm fixing to leave the office. I'll be back in a minute. I've got to go get some lunch. The, in, it also would help to know who the intended recipients are. And, of course, the language barrier that's there, language, grammar, slang, all of those things, and a little bit about the culture. So in those three interpretations I shared with you, you know, whether it was a surgery or in a peanut butter jar, are those correct interpretations? Not at all. Those would not be correct interpretations because the author's intent keeps them from being truly valid. And this is important for us to grasp tonight because we focus on what it takes in Bible study to grasp what God has for us, then we need to understand that there are some steps that we need to take in order to grasp what the author intended. Okay, So we, authorial intent in the Bible is especially clear. Now, in the last few decades, in teachers and schools and literature especially have taught that the reader's understanding of a passage takes precedence over the author's intended meaning. Uh, and so if, imagine reading Shakespeare, if you will, just however you want it to mean, uh, it totally changes the meaning of the place. In studying the Word of God, we can make the same error. And so we can claim that the text means whatever we want it to mean. For example, if you go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 1, you can infer to, uh, from the text that it is good for a man not to touch a woman is exactly what it says. And so you would infer then from that, just taking that out of the context of what, what is, is taught there, that uh, I could never, ever touch my wife. Well, that would go contrary to Genesis, where God says, go forth and multiply, right? And so there would be a conundrum there. And so we, the context is important. And so when we look at just to, trying to, to interpret the Bible according to whatever I want it to be, it can be a very dangerous end. Okay, And we need to take a few steps. So we're going to look at the focus of effective Bible study, and that's going to be really the need to determine author's intent. So let's just say we all write a personal note, right? I have notes actually stuck in my Bible from my children that they'll write me sometimes, and I'll put them in my Bible. I've got a note in here from some of the members of the church. I stick them in there, and I just stick them in there as just an encouragement, something to remind me of God's prayers, God's encouragement to me. Listen, we never write a note with the intention that the readers are going to interpret them any way they want, right? If I tell my children and I leave a note on the, on the refrigerator, take out the trash. The intent of that is take out the trash right now, right? And we, we all have raised children. We understand what that means. But our children interpret that note as take out the trash sometime whenever, the author's intent is what's important, all right? You're, and if you're writing the note, then it's important that, that your children understand it's your uh, intent, not their intent. And so look at Philippians 4.13 in your Bible. Philippians 4.13. We know this. You can probably quote it. It's going to be on the screen. So lots of places, your memory, your Bible, the screen. But this is a very common one. The Apostle Paul says, I can do all things... Through Christ which strengtheneth me. On the surface, what does this verse seem to teach you? You can do anything. You can do anything. 
That's right. All right, so I'm going to go tomorrow, and I'm going to run a four-minute mile in the morning with no training. Guess what's not going to happen tomorrow? And it doesn't matter how much I pray. It doesn't matter how much I get on my knees before I run. And I say, dear Jesus, I normally run a 10-minute mile, but tomorrow I want to run a four-minute mile. Could you make that happen? And I can get up and I can run my heart out and I'll die in about half a mile. Why? Because that is not the author's original intent. Listen, you can, you can twist Scripture to include all kinds of things, dunking a basketball or, or maybe passing a t- I remember how many did this, this as a student. You go in to take a test and you never studied. And you say, dear Lord, help me pass this test. That is not what that verse is dealing with. And it is not at all what God is trying to teach us there. Listen, what, what, what is to blame in this? It's their interpretation. It's not the Scripture. Okay, the interpretation, that idea that I can put whatever I want to in the scripture to make it mean whatever I want is what is at fault here. So most people are told most time we we come to church and I tell you, uh, share with you what the Bible means. And but you don't know always the process that goes into the study uh, before we ever uh, we ever share a message or your Bible teacher teaches you a message in your connection groups. We never we never share the process necessarily that what goes into all of that tonight. That's kind of what we want to share with you, the process of helping to learn what the Bible says and how we come across that. So let's, before we go any further, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the Bible. And Lord, I thank you that there is one good interpretation of the Bible. And so help us, Lord, to be diligent students, uh, to rightly divide the word of truth. And Lord, be able to grow uh, as a result of those efforts, understanding your truth and then applying it in our lives. And so tonight, as we just kind of lay out some of this groundwork, I pray that you would just really help us to have a little fun as we interact in the Word of God tonight and grow together. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you uh, just very quickly, what is, a, what is the biggest danger in uh, accepting any interpretation without giving any thought to whether it's valid or not? So, for example, somebody gets up and they, they quote 4, 3, Philippians 4.13 and they give you their interpretation. It has nothing to do with context, nothing to do with authorial intent. None of those things come into play here. What is the danger? Misinformation, Misinformation? yeah. Not learning the truth from God. Not learning the truth from God. Good. Yeah, Brother Leroy? Self-deception. Self-deception. Okay, I'm going down the wrong path. You know what it does? Not only does it bring bad interpretations, but it cheapens the Word of God. And the Word of God is so, so precious. I want you to look in Acts chapter 17, and we're going to look at this passage together. And as we do so, um, there is something unique about this passage with Paul and Silas. And uh, Luke writes here of a church in Berea that they had visited. And this church was unique from the one that they had previously visited Because when they heard the message of Paul and Silas, the Bible says they searched the Scriptures. Verse number 10. It says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. And these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Now, looking at that, we can kind of see, well, isn't it a little offensive for the people in Berea to, you know, to double-check Paul and Silas? Didn't they know who Paul and Silas were? But they went and they double-checked everything that they said. 
Listen, the reality is that Luke says that their intentions were noble because they searched the Scriptures to make sure that Paul and Silas were true to the author's intentions. We're going to look at some examples in Scripture of those that did not uh, hold true, and Christ even called them out to that. But imagine going back to the, the original text message. Remember the Shindig text message? Imagine, if you will, uh, if, the, if you could not know the author's intentions... Unless, uh, unless you investigated who the author was. You have to know his language. You have to know who he intended that note to go to. Uh, and without that needed knowledge, the recipients of that text would each come up with a radically different slant to what the meaning was. And they, as a result was they all misrepresented the text and missed the intent. The author's text had one valid meaning and the one that he meant when he wrote it. And the fact that he, the text message and the text recipients failed to understand what he meant did not change his original meaning. Listen, we must not bow to the segment of literary culture that directs the reader to determine meaning apart from author's intention. So, for example, you're driving down the road and you see a red light and you blow right through it. You get pulled over, the police pulls you over, you roll down your window, say, what's the problem, officer? He said, you ran the red line. Yeah, in my world, red means go. You think that's going to work. Why, why would that not work? I think he'd still give you a big fat ticket, maybe handcuff you for drinking, I'm not sure. You know, you could, you could at the end of the month, you know, you, uh, you get your, your mortgage payment, and you say, oh, I, I owe uh, $500 on my mortgage payment this month, so I'm going to send them a check for $200 and call it paid in full. Why, is that, why does that not work? I wish it did, amen? Listen, life doesn't work that way, does it? And neither does the Word of God. If someone, uh, someone in, intents or, or, or invents their own meaning for the Apostle Paul's words, then the meaning is his and not the Apostle Paul's or what God intended. So what happens when, when we do this to Scripture and we begin to interpret it to our own desires rather than the author's intentions and God's intentions is the Scriptures are, uh, become powerless in those moments. Now look with me in 2 Timothy chapter 2 or chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 4. The Apostle Paul instructed Timothy to preach the Word even when people didn't want to hear the truth of God's Word. And so he teaches him in, in this last uh, epistle, he says, Preach the Word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their hearts from the truth and shall be turned into fables. Listen, doesn't matter if our culture likes the message or not. Our job is simply to preach the Word, to be faithful to God's intention with the truth. We're never to yield it. We're not supposed to compromise on what God's intentions are, what God's interpretation of Scripture is. Okay, Those things are, should remain the same no matter what culture dictates around us. 
So we see the need to determine, but there's also there's the ability to determine authorial intent. So going back to that scenario in our introduction, the real issue is whether the actual recipients could have dis discerned what the author of the text meant. So if they could, then the author could communicate with them as well as he could have communicated with anybody else, like the intended recipients of the text. So consider then the components that would give access to this intent, okay, what he intended when he sent the text. The three people from the foreign country would need to learn English grammar. They would need to learn English syntax, and they would also need to learn slang uh, in, you know, what a shindig is or uh, what a jiffy is. I'll be back in a moment, you know, jiffy. Uh, and so there's several different slang words in there that, that he used in that. But they would also need a, a language course and a good dictionary to be able, uh, so they could make sense of the text. And it would also be helpful maybe if they knew something about the man who wrote it. So if they knew a little bit about him, if he was kind of a goofy guy, if he always very particular, very exact with his language. And so their understanding would also be clearer if they knew how his relationship was with those he sent the text to. Now, I don't know about you, but I've received texts from people that, um, that I was not the original or intended person. Anybody ever received one of those? And you're like, I don't have a clue what you want. I'm not, I don't have a clue what you're trying to tell me. And, and I know the person, I don't know who it's going to, and because I don't know who it's going to, then I'm totally in the dark. You know, it doesn't matter how, matter how well I know that person, but because I don't know the circumstances, and I don't know who it's going to, then I'm totally at a loss as to what this is supposed to mean to me. Listen, this is especially important when we think about the Word of God. Because it's not just a message that was sent in the last five minutes. It was a message that was given 2,000 years ago. And in that, then that means we've got to apply ourselves to be able to know um, the Apostle Paul or know uh, the Lord who is the author of our book, amen, and also to know who the, those epistles were written to. And when we do, then we get a little bit bigger uh, and fuller picture as to what was going on, you know, especially if you have this cultural setting of the author's life, or you know what's going on in the recipient's life and those things. For example, uh, in 2 Timothy, as we were since we're right there, understanding Paul was at the last stages of his life. He's trying to encourage Timothy there at the end, and it understands them uh, when he comes to verse number uh, chapter 4, and he says, listen, I'm telling you, in these days and these ages, don't forget to be faithful to preaching the Word. So, if we fail to understand the author, if we fail to understand the recipients, then we're going to fail to understand the text. And, uh, and that is so vital for us to understand. So, um, can we understand the Bible uh, discerning God's intended message? And the answer is yes. We have access to information about the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible itself is a plethora of information, and we can learn things, and, and that's what we're going to look at next. Look in two places in your Bible, Leviticus 19 and Matthew chapter number 5. Leviticus 19, Matthew chapter number 5. And so you're going to want your finger in both of those places. And we're going to look at an Old Testament passage, and then Christ interprets the Old Testament passage, and He gives a correction to those who misinterpreted it. So Leviticus 19, 18, and then Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. If you got it, say amen. Still working on it, say oh me. Oh me. All right. 
Hopefully there's less old me's now. We're going to look first at Leviticus 19.18. We're going to read this, and then we're going to look at Christ and His response in the New Testament. Leviticus 19.18. He says, find it in my Bible. I'm in the wrong place, so I'll look, read it from there. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love the Lord, love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Now that's pretty, pretty logical. And, and if we connect it in our mind to Matthew 5.43, then we know Jesus also talks about this passage. Now go to Matthew 5.43. In Matthew 5.43, Jesus himself talks about this passage, but he does so with a correction. Verse 43, he says, You've heard that it had been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. So he's talking about a present day application of Leviticus 19.18. Christ's present day, not our present day. And so he says, You've heard that it had been said. Okay, so he's talking about, Today you've heard the Pharisees, the Sadducees, teaching about Leviticus 19.18, Thou shalt love thy neighbor. Was that in the original text? Yes. And hate thine enemy. Was that in the original text? No. No. So what happened? Well, their interpretation was wrong. Okay. Look at the next verse. Verse 43. I believe it's, it's there. Uh, 44. Sorry. There it is. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully, despitefully use you and persecute you. And so now we have in this passage, Christ begins to lay out a little bit different interpretation, a radically different interpretation from the Pharisees. And what was it? It says, not just love your friends, love your neighbors, but now he begins to say, listen, love your enemies. Bless them that, bless, that curse you. Why would Christ say this? Look in verse number 45. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for He maketh His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. So Christ's interpretation of Leviticus 19.18 was different from the Pharisees, because he knew the author. The author was God. Leviticus 19, verse 1. Uh, I don't know that that's going to be on the screen. Uh, but in Leviticus 19, 1, it says, The Lord spake unto Moses. These were God's words. And so Christ knew the Heavenly Father. Christ knew the character of God and knew that God didn't hate people who weren't Israeli. And so he knew immediately this is a wrong interpretation. And I'm telling you what God says is, is the definition of neighbor is not just other Israelis, other people like you, but a neighbor is anyone and everyone around you because God loves all men. Okay, so Christ's interpretation then was a correct interpretation because he knew the author of the Bible. The Pharisees and Sadducees and rabbis did not. So what did the rabbis need to know about God? Well, look in Psalm 65. Psalm 65, verses 9 through 13. If they had remembered a little bit more about the character of the, of the author of Leviticus 19.18, then they would be able to say, it is not God's teaching that we should love our neighbor and hate our enemy. 
Because he says, Thou visitest the earth and waterest it, thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God, which is full of water. Thou preparest them corn thou, uh, when thou hast so provided for it. Thou waterest the ridges thereof abundantly. Thou settest, settlest the furrows thereof. Thou makest it soft with showers. Thou blessest the springing thereof. Thou crownest the year with thy goodness, and thy paths drop fatness, and they drop upon the pastures of wilderness, and the hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys are covered over with corn. They Shout for joy, they also sing. You know what he was. Uh, you know what he was referring to in, in Matthew five forty five. The Father makes it to rain on the just and the unjust. His blessings fall on both. And that's something. And as we look at this, Jesus Christ was pulling out the fuller picture of who God is in His interpretation of Leviticus nineteen eighteen. And so, what the rabbis failed to, to understand. And what they found, failed to apply was their understanding of who God was. So when we go to Scripture and we're looking to see, okay, how can I understand what this passage is? We have to understand the author. It is so vital that we understand who God is. And so the Apostle Paul instructed Timothy, remember in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's implied that we can understand God's intent for a passage as we devote ourselves to studying it. Don't be afraid of digging in. Now there's a process. We looked at a focus. Now we're going to look at the process of this. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight. Because Bible study is a step-by-step process, just like any other activity. Uh, and, and so it comes to a de- uh, de- uh, desired or specific outcome. And so we've discovered the Lord designed the Bible to be applied to our lives. It teaches us about Him and His love for us and in the aspects of our relationship that He initiated for us and with us. And so as we study the Bible, we're going to learn of our great God. I realize His power for growth. And 2 Peter 1.3 says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So God has given us these things through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Listen, I'm not going to learn that by walking, walking through the woods. I'm going to learn that through the Bible. And so God's revealed Himself to us through the pages of Scripture. And if you're willing to move step by step through the process of Bible study, you're going to be equipped for every good work. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 17, after all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So there are three steps that we're going to look at in this Bible study process. We're going to define them briefly tonight. We're not going to go into a lot of depth. Uh, We'll do that a little bit more as we go forward. But but tonight we're just going to look at them very briefly because I realize time will get away from us uh, if I tarry too long. And so the very first step in Bible study is observation. Observation. And it is the most crucial step in Bible study. We cannot rush through this step. Okay, observation is just simply seeing all that is in a passage. We look at the text as it is. We observe the words in the passage, how they fit together to form a structure that communicates a message. Uh, And we observe the literature form as well as the passage's tone. And so there's so much that goes into observation here. Most of the Bible study process takes place right here in observation. It takes time, it takes thoughts, and rushing through observation will, will usually result in a bad interpretation and application. 
So let's try it. Look at Psalms chapter 1 with me. Psalms chapter 1. We're going to do this together. We're going to read this passage aloud together uh, from our Bible. Oh, excuse me. I'm going to read it aloud. You're going to read it quietly, and then we will read it aloud together. We're going to read it three times, all right? So the reason of this is we're going to observe some things in the Scriptures. So you're looking for things in the Scriptures. So we're, this, is a, this is what we call practice, folks. All right, so this is good for us. All right, so if you got your Bible out, make sure you're ready to go. And we're going to, what I want you to do is as you go along, look for things in the Scripture. And especially by the third time, I'm going to ask you if there's things that you saw the third time you didn't see the first time. So I'm going to read it aloud the first time. You're going to read it quietly the second time. Ready? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in this congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now, this is your turn. You're going to read quietly to yourself. You can make notes or whatever, uh, but I'm going to let you read through these six verses by yourself quietly, and then we're going to read it one more time all together aloud. All right, so now we're going to read it aloud together. So if you will, I just read it along with me out loud. Ready? Begin. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the seat sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and wheresoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. All right, good. So after the third time reading it, was there something that you noticed that you didn't notice the first time? Anybody can answer. You're reading it again. Say, so what did I miss? His fruit, his, his fruit in God's fruit or the, the righteous man's fruit? Okay, good. His fruit in his season. All right. And it take, there's a season for that. All right, good. And, and that also could tie to, we could play off of that and tie to Galatians 6, 7, and 8. I be not deceived, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And so when we're re sowing good seed, then we're going to reap good fruit. And so there are uh, some things that tie in there too. Good. Thanks, Brother Steve. Someone else? Brother Tom. Negative progression of sin. 
Yes, there's a negative progression of sin. And we see this lived out around us all the time. Uh, we make one little compromise. That compromise becomes a bigger uh, desire, hunger for sin. And the next thing we know, it's a whole lifestyle change that is, that is manifest itself. And probably if we think hard enough, we can think of some other places in Scripture where that also is borne out. And so, good. Anybody else? Brother Leroy. Yes, and so he has the fruit and the nourishment he needs uh, because he has a good source. Good, very good. Yes, ma'am. Okay, good, good. Now, we don't want to go too far into application yet. Right now, we're just still observing, so that's good. Yes, Very good. Good. So there's a progression even in those verses. Uh, at the blessed, the delight, and what was the last one? The result. The result. Verse number six. Wrong. Yes. Good. All right. Good. Verse three. I'm sorry. Yes, ma'am. All right. There's a separation, a distinction, like the wheat and the tares. Good. So you see the simple process of just taking time. And here's what happens a lot of times. And, and I, I love reading. I, I read a lot of Scripture every single day. But that's so I can get a big bird's eye picture of things. Okay. But when I want to meditate on a passage and do Bible study, I'm not looking at reading a lot of Scripture. I want to take some time and pour over smaller amounts of Scripture. And I'm going to pour over it again. And I'm looking for things uh, like some of the digression of skin or sin or the progression of God's blessings and, and how God works in our life. And so we're looking for those things in the Scripture. So observation is the very first steps. And when you begin that observation process, your eyes begin to be opened up. And, you don't, uh, and you're going to discover things in the Word of God you've never seen before. Rushing through a passage never leaves time for observation. So take time, slow down and read, pause, consider a word. We'll talk about dictionaries and tools that you can use to uh, understand how what certain words uh, mean. Uh, and, and that's all in that observation process. We'll look at that a little bit more next time. Second step is interpretation. All right, so we see observation, observe the passage, pay close attention to the words and how they relate to one another. Now we're going to interpretation. It sounds technical, maybe even threatening, but it is, this, it is very simple. We looked at quite a bit last week as we talked about literal interpretation of the Bible. But interpret is to explain the meaning of a text. So interpretation, again, is not open to our opinion, uh, nor should our interpretation of Scripture be colored by how, uh, whether we will be offended or somebody else will be offended by the interpretation. The Bible is plain and forthright, and so our interpretations of a passage should be the same. So now look at 2 Kings 22. 2 Kings 22, we're going to look at a young man uh, named Josiah tonight. 2 Kings 22, verses 8 through 13 is where we're going to look at together. I'm not going to have you do the same process of observation we did before. We're just going to read through it and observe Josiah's response in this, uh, in this passage to the Word of God. Verse 8, it says, and, Hil uh, and Hilkiah the priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. 
And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king, and he brought the king word again, and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work, and that, they, uh, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest had delivered me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of uh, Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Asahiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book, to do according unto all that is, uh, which is written uh, concerning us. So we see here, uh, as Josiah heard the word of the God, that he had a response. Did he take it seriously? Yes, absolutely he did. As a matter of fact, his response was to tear off his clothes or tear his clothes as a sign of repentance. He took very seriously what God had shared with him. Now look in verse number 14. Let's keep reading through verse 17. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Ekbor and Shaphan and Asahiah went into Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in college, and they communed with her. And she said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, Tell the man that sent you to me, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even on uh, all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. So why would we read these, these words? And let me just ask you, would Josiah have been tempted to maybe to soften uh, the scriptures that were read or maybe to downplay them a little bit? I mean, think about this. He was in a culture that was living in disobedience to God. They were worshiping false idols and false gods. They had erected groves and different things. The culture was totally against the Word of God. And thus, he would be met with a lot of resistance if he was going to stand for it. Okay? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's a, it's a growing issue in America today. And so, but Josiah's response was, was incredible. Look in verse number 18 now, 18 through 20. But to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which thou hast heard, because thy heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord. When thou heardest what I spake against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and has rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into, into thy grave in peace, and I shall not see all the evil which I bring upon this place. And they brought the king word again. There's no evidence that uh, he tried to explain it away, to misinterpret the scripture intentionally, but instead what we see is he just humbled himself in light of the truth of the Scripture, and God was gracious. His response was, was good. And when we look at the interpretation of the Bible, sometimes it's going to come down, it's going to stomp on some toes, and, and in those moments, we have a decision we're, how we're going to respond. We're either going to listen to the Word of God, heed what God has for us, or we're going to rebel against it. 
And so that is so important that we see that our response is important. And, uh, and since the Bible was written uh, at times in cultures we don't fully understand, we need uh, some, some other tools that might shed light on this passage understanding. And we'll look at that a little bit more in the weeks to come. Last step, and I'm, I'm going to be out of time tonight, is application. Observation is observe the passage. Interpretation is determine the intended meaning of the passage. And application, that's where we're at. It builds the bridge between knowing and doing. So you can have one interpretation, but there can be multiple ways that it applies to your life, okay? And so observation and interpretation brings us to a point where we can be confident we uh, understood the writer's intended meaning, and that knowledge does not necessarily uh, make us more like our Savior until we apply the truth. First, what we need to do is assess whether a given passage is meant for our lives. For instance, Ephesians 5.25. If you're a wife in here, the Bible says, or a lady, it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So we can, we can interpret this Bible passage, but we can understand that this Bible passage is applied to who? Husbands. Yeah, we see that right out of the back, out of the box right there. And so God has an intended meaning. Now, there's some things about God that you can understand. You can understand, some, but we see the application here is going to be intended toward those husbands in this passage. And so uh, she would be able to understand what that love is an action, not just a feeling. Uh, she could understand that the, and discern that there is a sacrificial element that is part of love. And since love is modeled after the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and listen, by the time her study is finished, she'd have a long list of characteristics about a husband's love, but she would not necessarily be able to apply the passage directly to herself. Why? Because she cannot be a husband. True, if she were married, she might have a way to maybe uh, show her husband and say, this is what you need to do in my life, you know. But, that's, but the regardless, what we see is, is she can understand some things about biblical love, uh, but she would not be able to apply it as a husband because she can't be one. Now, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. Now, this is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And for sake of time, I'm not going to read 17 verses, uh, but I'm just going to read the first verse. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you can go down through there and you see uh, the big acts. Jacob beget Judas and his brethren. Judas beget Pharaoh and Zerah of Tamar. And you can go down all the way through those, uh, all the way to the end. And all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. You can read all of this. We, why would we not normally... Read this passage for personal application. Because it seems more informational, right? It, it te teaches us a lot about God. It teaches, it teaches about the personality of God, His care for us, about His love, that God would come down from heaven. There's a lot of things that we can determine about God, but there's not necessarily a lot in there that we're going to be able to say, okay, so this applies to me, A, B, C. But God leaves it in there because the Bible's not just about me, it's about Him. And He's teaching us about Himself and about His Son, Jesus Christ. And these truths are applicable to our lives because of who God is and His work in our lives. And so after we determine whether a passage uh, is something that should affect our walk with the Lord, we must then take steps to make, to make sure that that happens in our lives. 
There have been many times in my Bible study that as I go down through the study, and, and I've, I, I have the practice of writing things as I'm reading and studying the Bible. And I just have a notepad or, or journal or something open where I can physically write something down as I study the Bible. And when I get done, I look back through the things that I've learned and I say, Lord, where, what, are, what are some truths that need to be applied to my life? And then I take some time and I lay out some action steps. All right, God, what's the first thing I need to do today to help in this area? You see, because application involves asking myself, what am I going to do now in light of this truth? You've been, you've been shared the truth, so what are you going to do now? What steps do I need to take to be able to live out the truth of the Word of God? Because I don't want to have a great knowledge of God, but no uh, and no application in my life. Application requires faith. And faith is by faith that we are, are pleasing to God. So tonight, as we just come to the conclusion of all of this, I'm going to wrap up with something that I want, to, I want you to see. Christ taught the importance of both in understanding and applying Scripture in Matthew 5. We saw that. And He ended with a lesson... Uh, that lesson with a note that I think is a good place for us to land tonight. Matthew 5, 48. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We're not going to be completely perfect until God glorifies us. We understand that. But until then, we ought to be using God's Word to grow daily in Christ-likeness. I want to daily learn what God's Word says so that I can apply it to my life and I can be more like Jesus. So what's step one for you tonight? Maybe step one is just, maybe there's already some things that God's work, been working on your heart and your life, and maybe you just need to come before the throne of God and say, Lord, I, I just want to humbly bow before you tonight. And I want to get these right. I know that I've been living in sin, and I just want to get this right with you tonight. But going forward, I would encourage you, maybe there's, as you go through your Bible reading, and just to slow down, take some time to observe the text, to take some time to write some things down and, and try to discern what God's intended meaning of the text is so that you can apply it correctly in your day-to-day -day life. Because three sermons a week, even three sermons a week is never enough, is it? We need God's Word daily in our life. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is such a privilege to share God's Word with you. If God has spoken to your heart because of the message, stop right now and respond to whatever it is God is asking of you. Don't wait another minute. You can pray right where you're at and ask God for His help. If this message has helped you in any way, we would love to hear from you. Let us know if you have any questions or we can help you with your decision. Jesus asked his disciples, Who do ye say that I am? And he offers the same question to you today. What would your answer be?